How to Play, Episode I, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned from Playing Board Games. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone, welcome to the How to Play podcast. I'd been asked a few times to re-release some of my prior Dice Tower segments and uh, the series that I did in the summer and fall of 2010 on the Dice Tower is something that personally I am really proud of. Uh, I'm happy with how it came out. It was not incredibly popular, I suppose, because it was mainly a, a personal exploration of examining some of the deeper things that we can learn from playing board games. But I'm really happy with some of the reflections that came out of this, so I hope that maybe you'll enjoy giving this a re-listen. These originally appeared on the Dice Tower podcast somewhere around the 180s. There were five parts and five separate episodes, and I've compilated them all here for you now. So here we go. All I really need to know, I learned from playing board games. Enjoy. Part 1. Get your priorities straight. Ah, prioritization. Some of my favorite games are games that make you prioritize. You know, you need to look at a multitude of options and then decide which is the most important for you to do now and which you can afford to wait to do later and perhaps miss out on the opportunity to do that action. These sort of decisions can be found in almost every game, but they're easy to see through the worker placement mechanic. Think about Agricola, Kalis, Age of Empires, or Stone Age. In those games, prioritization is essentially the entire game. Whoever makes the best decisions about which action is the most important for them each turn will win the game. You also see this in games involving drafting, such as Notre Dame or Fairy Tale. Which card is the most important to you, and which can you afford to pass? Or even the staple Ticket to Ride. Do I have to play on that route now, or can I get those blue cards I need? Which track should I build first? Which can I build later? These sorts of decisions are the reasons why I play board games. I love trying to figure out what's my best move each turn. And you know what's great about board games is you almost always get immediate feedback from those decisions by how many points you score and you can reflect on how well you did in that game. And you can use that knowledge to better your play in future games. Which is why board games are way easier than actual life. It's fun to imagine life as a gigantic game of Agricola, where hundreds of times a day you have your one wooden disc and you've got millions of squares from which to choose from. Imagine your Saturday morning, for example. You get up in the morning. Do you hit the snooze alarm? Do you get dressed right away? Or do you take a shower? It's breakfast time. Do you have cereal? Do you make some eggs? Do you go to your local coffee shop? Now what? Are you going to exercise? Play with your kids? watch some TV, or train for a competitive eating contest. It's the afternoon. Would you like to visit your mom, call your friends, or listen to an episode of the How to Play podcast? 
I'm of course just giving you a sampling of the millions and billions of options that you have every second of every day of your life. And in comparison, a game like Agricola is so much simpler. In Agricola, you only need to get some food tokens and score metaphorical victory points. You think it's hard baking bread in Agricola? How many token placements do you think would be required to start a professional career in middle-class modern society? And victory points? Oh, if it were only so simple. Wouldn't it be great if the meaning of life was all laid out for you in the obtainment of items and goals, all of which were attached to quantifiable numerical value? And if by the time you croaked, you reached a certain score, then you would leave this world a winner, having attained complete fulfillment and joy. Well, that would be something, wouldn't it? But that's the joy of it all, isn't it? That life is hard and unpredictable, and that only you can decide how to win your own actual game of life. But one thing is for sure. Life is short. You've got to get your priorities straight. Part 2. The Road Not Taken So I do these instructional podcasts on teaching people how to play a game, and at the end of each show, I always try to give the listeners some basic beginning strategy tips. And time and time again, I seem to give the same piece of simple yet effective advice. Seven words that are a strategy that always seem to be an important consideration and can improve your standing in a multiplayer game, no matter what that game might be. And those seven words are, do what the other players aren't doing. From the simplest to the most complex of games, if you focus your efforts towards areas that the other players are ignoring, you're going to tend to have greater success. Some examples of this from popular games would include games that score points in multiple categories. For example, look at the game Alhambra. There's six different colors of buildings which score separately. And if you manage to go after the colors that the fewest other players are involved in, you're most likely to score more points. Or an area majority or area control game such as El Grande. Now obviously you'd like to get to areas that the other players don't seem to be interested in. To games that include a supply and demand element, such as Power Grid or Brass. Now if you take advantage of resources that no one else seems to be interested in, you'll save yourself lots of money and be able to score points more easily. And it's easy to think about many examples when two or three players end up in a dogfight trying to get that same thing and end up committing far too many resources. Especially in an auction game, such as Modern Art or Age of Steam. When a player gets caught up into a bidding war and gets this undeniable urge to win, squandering a lot of their resources. Or think about that one time where you played a game and you tried this new crazy strategy that nobody had ever tried before and it seemed so crazy that it might just work. And it did. I think one of the great skills you can gain from playing games is developing this greater sense of moving from a narrow viewpoint of this is what I want to do and I have to do this no matter what to get into this constant state of analysis and seeing each turn as a fresh new start and reevaluating those choices that you had planned, seeing the big picture and making sure that better options haven't become available. And as useful as it may be to win that game of El Grande or Age of Steam, these skills have a greater purpose. Imagine applying that same sense of reflection and analysis to your day-to-day life. Instead of getting caught up in the day-to-day slog and routines, every once in a while, take a step back. Think and reflect on your current situation and think, what other options are available to me now? Is there another path? Can I do what other people aren't doing? Are there other opportunities for me that other people can't see? What can I do that other people won't do or can't do? 
Now this whole idea of filling in niches that aren't being satisfied is certainly something that's constantly applied in adults' professional lives, with people developing successful businesses or career paths, in realizing an opportunity that no one else has seen before, in creating a product that fills a need no one ever knew existed, or launching a career in a field that few others would dare attempt. But it's also a valuable concept in our personal lives. So strong can be the pull of conformity and the status quo, it's easy to get lost in such pressures and shy away from following your heart, of establishing our own personal identity, and of being frightened of doing something that has never been done before, of doing more than just being, but also creating, creating something, anything that's never been done before. So I say, just as you would do in one of your favorite games, dare to do what other people aren't doing. Or as my friend Bob would say, Take the road less traveled by. It might just make all the difference. Part 3. What's it worth? One of the most important skills that board games can teach you is the concept of relative value. The skill of being able to constantly assess the changing value of a card, a tile, a spot on the board, or perhaps of a trade being offered to you by your opponent. Now many times in board games you have to guess at the possible value of things without having all of the necessary information, but you have to use the clues that you have available to judge the potential value of that item, and perhaps throughout the game you're given more clues as to how much things are worth. You'll find this in many of our games. Almost all of the games that include some kind of an auction element force you to really think about what something could be worth. Even something as innocuous as a bid for starting player can lead to a complicated thought process of how much is that really worth? Or you could think of the changing values of possible actions in a worker placement game as a turn progresses or as the game progresses. Though we see this most of all in pure auction games, three great examples of relative value in games are from Reiner Knizia's trilogy of amazing auction games, Modern Art, Raw, and Medici. In all three of these games, the whole game is essentially looking at a card or a set of tiles and using the clues you have available to determine the worth of that item. The clues you might use include the tiles or cards that other players had collected, which tiles or cards have already come out, and which are left in the bag, and how much time is left in the round. All of these are factors that affect the value of the items that are being bid on. And with every pull of the tile or draw of a card, the value of that item changes and we get more information. Many interesting phenomenon reveal themselves as the values change. You have to consider how the value to each player changes. As players are collecting different tiles or cards, now the value of each individual player will vary on future items. One item might be much more valuable to them than it is to you. And if the value to another player raises to a certain point, you might have to consider the value of denying this item to another player. Many times in a game where relative value is a factor, it can really be a skill to read the other players at the table. And maybe you use a bit of small talk at the table or just try to read their body language to try to get a player to reveal just how valuable an item is to that player. You also need to consider the potential value. As you see the events of the game unfold, you have to consider not just what is the apparent value, but also what that final worth could be by the end of a round or at the end of the game. So that's all well and good and interesting, but is there any deeper message that we can learn from these exercises and changing values? Well, we're all confronted in various situations in our everyday lives when being able to discern a hidden value of a good or a service could be very important. Recently, I can think of two situations from my own life that I was forced to use these skills. 
I got to play the very real game of negotiating the actual price that I would pay for a car I was buying. And I also had to negotiate a price that I would pay a contractor to finish my basement. Now these real-life games were especially challenging for me because of my complete and utter lack of knowledge of the cost of anything related to cars or construction. Though I honestly believe that some of the tactics and skills I developed in my favorite games by bidding low, reading body language, and exploring options from my competitors helped me to obtain a fair price. Continuing to look at the big picture of relative value, I think about the changing of values that's occurred in my own life over the last 15 years. I think about how my own personal game has played out and becoming a father and the stage that I'm in in my career. And it's interesting to reflect on how things change in your life after a few years or even just a few months. Seven months ago, my first daughter Gwen was born, and a few things that just used to seem so important just seemed to not really matter that much anymore. Fatherhood has had a significant impact on how my values have changed, and I now have a much different view on what is most valuable to me. So keep on asking yourself, what is this really worth? Part 4. In Other People's Shoes Ever play a game and think, I wonder what that guy's going to do next turn? Humans are selfish creatures by nature. It's only natural that as living things we seek to meet our own personal needs, and we are constantly thinking about what we need and what we want, and almost all of our actions and thoughts are geared toward meeting our own personal needs and desires. In games, it is no different. When players play a game, all of their actions and strategies are based on their personal motives within that game. Now, in a typical board game experience, you'd have four or so players sitting around the table, all motivated by that single desire to win. Many times in a board game, it can be advantageous to be able to really see the game from another player's shoes and to be able to predict their actions and think, if I were you, how do I see this game right now and what would my next move be? And in many cases, the answer is simple. They're trying to win the game and they're going to make the move that most benefits them. However, in many cases, it is not that simple. Sometimes you have to factor in that player's understanding of the game. If they don't know the game well, they may make moves that make sense to them in their attempt to win the game, but don't make sense in the grand scheme of playing the game well. You might think about a Ticket to Ride player who plays the game one route at a time, or a player playing Puerto Rico who takes that craftsman, thinking he gets lots of goods and not realizing the upcoming consequences. And even though those actions don't make sense to you, they make perfect sense from that player's shoes. It also gets more complicated when you factor in players whose decisions are motivated by more than just the desire to win. Their actions may be driven by a relationship they have with someone else at the table, or a personal vendetta they have against another player, or somebody who just wants to try to do something cool, or somebody who thinks they can't win no matter what, so they're not even going to try, or somebody who tries to lose the game on purpose. All of these motivations, and many more, could be what is going through a player's head as they make each decision in a game. Sometimes it can be very much to your advantage to be able to read these motivations and be able to predict what your opponent might do. And sometimes it can be more fun than the actual game itself to try to predict and think about why players are playing the way that they are. Take a game like Citadels. For me, the whole fun of this game is trying to guess what people will do and see how people react from round to round. And it's funny how your sense of perspective can cloud your judgment as you attempt to read the intentions of others. Because at times I know that I've convinced myself that a player would not make a move that would hurt me, simply because I was hoping that they wouldn't. 
I think most of us have let our personal perspective cloud our judgment in another circumstance as well, in choosing the right game for a given circumstance. As the game guy, it's often my responsibility to pick out a game for a variety of situations, including a game experience for my family or games for my game club for fourth graders. And many times I've failed in this exercise as I attempt to pull out a game that's fun for me, but not for anybody else, which of course makes it not fun for me either. I've learned that my family wants to play board games with me simply because they know it's a love of mine and they want to share that with me and spend time with me. But for the love of God, Ryan, please don't break out Settlers of Catan again. In my game club, I've learned that kids are still kids and they need games that are appropriate for them and their abilities. I need to put Ticket to Ride back on the shelf and get back out Apples to Apples and Transamerica and Dungeon. And remember how eight-year-old Ryan thought that Dungeon was the greatest game ever made. And for eight-year-old boys, it just possibly could be. And I've learned how important it is to recognize how my own personal motivations are impacting the choices that I make. And when I need to try to see things from a bigger picture. When I need to see things from other people's shoes. Part 5. The Balance I use games a lot in my fourth grade classroom. I use them for a number of reasons. I use them because they're an incredible way to engage students in learning content. But perhaps most important of all is teaching these children the difficult balance of respectful competition. I'll never be able to teach my students everything I would like, and it's likely they won't remember things like what an interjection is, or who Peter Stuyvesant was, or which part of the crayfish is the cephalothorax. But I know that when it comes right down to it, that if they learn nothing else, I hope they leave fourth grade with two values, ambitious scholarship and citizenship. I want them to understand the importance of ambitious hard work to be competitive and to be the best that they can. And I want them to remember that they're part of a greater community and they need to be a contributing and positive member of that community. Sometimes these two things seem to pull at opposite ends of the spectrum. Work your hardest to be the best yet still do it in a way that is respectful and remaining a positive citizen within the group. Teaching these two values and the balance between them I believe is the most important thing I can do for these students and for the communities in which they live. Our world is a competitive world. When these kids grow to be adults, they need to have the ambition and work ethic to be able to compete and succeed. But it is also our hope that they will do so in a way that makes their town, their country, and their world a better place to live. We see all the time the results of people who lack these values. It used to be in America that just getting a college degree or even having a high school diploma was a guarantee to a decent career and life in the middle class. This is not the case any longer, not without strong ambition, hard work, and a little bit of luck. We also see examples every day of people who act or make choices with their only consideration being themselves and forgetting that they are part of a larger community. From things as drastic as selling huge mortgages to people that in no way can afford them, to things as simple as the gradual erosion of friendliness, respect, and polite behavior in public life. How can I possibly teach this fragile balance between competitive ambition and cooperative citizenship? One word. Games. I can use a simple game as a way to teach and instill the values I hope for them to demonstrate as they go out in the world and play the great game of life. First of all, games can teach them the importance of ambition and hard work. Within the context of a game, students learn that if you work hard and play better than the other players, you're often rewarded with victory. They learn that if you work hard and play your best, sometimes you still lose. 
And students learn that if you don't play as well, you don't put in as much effort, or frankly, just aren't as good at a certain activity, you will lose. It's difficult to see kids lose, but it's worse to let them win without effort, or let them think they're good at something that they're not. Or worse yet, never give them any experience of real competition. In order to prepare students for a competitive world, we have to teach them how to compete, including what it takes to succeed. But also the very important lesson of the manner in which we expect them to compete. They need to learn how they can be competitive and yet still be a respectful member of their community. How they can compete in a way that still makes the game fun for everybody. And that there is a right way to win and a right way to lose. The balance of respectful competition is something we can all continue to work on. Have you ever caught yourself doing any of the following things at game night? Complaining about your bad luck incessantly. Getting so involved in the game that you forget to learn and use the names of your competitors or interact with them. Or after falling behind in a game, stop trying to place as high as possible or play the game in a way that diminishes the experience for others. Or have you manipulated people just learning the game to your own advantage? Or finish a game and immediately explain to the whole table the reasons why you didn't win? Or forget to congratulate the winner of the game? Or thank the teacher? These are common behaviors during gameplay in a classroom of fourth graders, and they're not entirely uncommon from adults at a game day. These are some of the most important lessons I teach my students, and sometimes they are lessons that we as adults need to remind ourselves of as well. Playing games throughout my life has taught me so much about the way I wish to act as a person and attempt to model this balance of ambitious scholarship and good citizenship. It is my greatest hope that I can convey these values to my students, to make them better people, and to make our communities a better place to live. I hope that this segment and this series has gotten you to think a bit about all the things you can really learn from playing board games. This has been Ryan Sturm from the How to Play podcast. So there it was. Those were my reflections of five very important things that we can get out of board games. I hope you enjoyed that. I know it's a bit departure from what I normally do here on How to Play. And I appreciate your patience in, uh, in waiting for some of these regular episodes that I know some of you are hoping for. Those of you who are just finding the show, well, normally I teach people to play board games. I hope you'll go back, look through the catalog at my website, howtoplaypodcast.com and learn, teach, and play some great games. And hopefully you'll learn a lot more than just about the games. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play and Ludology podcasts. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com for all the how to play resources to discuss the show to contact me or to show your appreciation for the show with a paypal donation i count on your support to help keep how to play growing if you use and love the how to play podcast i need your help show your appreciation by making a donation spread the word about the show and just let me know what you think about the show there at the guild thanks again to you the how to play listeners around the world and until next time i hope you will learn teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.